This is Tom Svigoski, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, and I'm not wearing any pants. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily! It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that we will give you witchcraft. We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. From behind the photo collection of 1980s pogs, which were made from actual Lithuanian pogs in the Area 51 portable racquetball court, it's clickbait for the years. Welcome to TalkCast 379, this edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight, with very few reasons left, I'm your host, The Dome, saying, do you know how much gum surgery hurts? Really? Really? Especially juicy fruit gum surgery? Anyway, joining the TalkCast tonight, the gang from the Peabody Time Tunnel, it's our own taciturn technical trouble wrangler, Kriana. I'd like to point out that I only sourced my pogs free fucking trade, okay? (laughs) Lithuanians? No Lithuanian No, pugs? no. Okay. Free trade. Gotcha. And where they grow naturally on pog trees. Gotcha. Well, that, that's good to know, and I'm sure being eco-friendly like that with pogs was No, that's helpful. less eco-friendly than Lithuania. It doesn't matter, though, because it feels better. Okay. As long as it feels better, that's what matters. Yes. And, of course, from the Dank Dungeons Automatic Reference Repair Room, found behind the semi-hidden entrance of the Don Wells Alternate Meditation and Mediation Center at Cyborg University's satellite campus in Claremont, Wisconsin, welcome, Zombrarian. Okay, so I know I'm usually behind on a lot of things. Yes, yes. Where were you guys getting pogs in the 80s? Everybody had pogs in the 80s. Pogs were a 90s thing, don't. Not uh, She's right. Hawaii. Pogs were definitely a 90s thing, actually. <laughs> she's totally, and they were like mint to late 90s. Sorry to bring we that to you. We used to go it's true. to the roller rink slash the roller rink slash disco bowling place. And disco bowling wasn't actually anything to do with disco. They just painted the pins and the balls with glow-in-the-dark paint and put on black lights. Was um, there a mirror ball? There was not. Ugh, there was, was nothing disco, disco about disco bowling. Um, but they did have... Um, yeah, it was the a, mid-1990s, by the way. <laughs> a little so, machine yeah. that you could get pogs out of. And I would wear my little blossom bucket hat and my overalls. <laughs> and overalls were great for pogs because you had multiple pockets Plenty to put them in. Plenty of pockets for them, absolutely. Or you could wear your cargo pants and just fill them with pogs. But yes, 90s. Pogs were in the 90s. Tonight's nostalgia trip was brought to you by Fanta Soda. Hey, I. you know what? <laughs> it's relevant because my favorite pog had a holographic unicorn on it 
And that is fantasy related, which falls under the auspices of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. And, and my that. second favorite had a skull. So horror, boom, <laughs> I made it relevant. Nice job, young lady. We're all very proud of you. Thank you. And of course, missing tonight, the man who was recently heard to say it'll be a cold day in hell when it's a warm day at McMurdo Station. The man who tried to print wooden nickels on his 3D printer and failed. Uh, hopefully he'll join us later, our futurist and gamer, the guy who likes shiny stuff awake by Java. But he's not here. Wait, enough. wait, wait, I'm here. Hi, I'm Java, and my favorite pog had Sonic the Hedgehog on it. It was the Sonic the Hedgehog pog. It rhymed. Here's a wonderful segue. <laughs> we honestly should have a show where we just make fun of him for an hour. We could do that. But we won't. Our guest tonight is an author, um, a futurist. He was an author for a while, then he stopped authoring. Now he's authoring again. He's written a ton of books, and he's got an unpronounceable name. Alex <laughs> Yablakov, because I suck with names. Was that even close? That was exactly right. No one ever gets it on the oh, first try. I'm, I'm kind of amazed at myself. <laughs> um, Alex, I, I heard about you from uh, a friend of the show, Colby Elliott, who's uh, actually a good friend of mine. He shot me an email, email about two months ago, and he goes, so I chatted with science fiction author Alexander... Uh, and then he spelled your name wrong at Risha for two and a half hours a little while ago. He's written six sci-fi novels to date. I narrated his book Nimbus a few years back. He's a very funny and articulate and incredibly intelligent guy. Well, you have something to live up to tonight, Alex. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> welcome to welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Well, thank you. So. You wrote a bunch of books in the mid to late 90s, and then you stopped writing for a while, uh, as your bio says, to get a real paying job. <laughs> um, and what made you come back to it? My kids got older. <laughs> Was it really I, uh, easy? <laughs> well, I had to go, yeah, I had to support the family, so I had to get a real job. Well, if you, count, if you call marketing a real job. Uh, I think a highly underrated job for fiction writers. Um, the skill transference is actually extremely good. Um, so that's what I did. And plus, you know, writers have their crotchets and their emotional storms. And I, you know, I'd written five books and um, in pretty short order. And um, I wasn't getting the traction I wanted, and so I went and spent some time working and raising children, and then they stopped wanting to talk to me, so um, I went back to writing. Yeah, I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean about uh, um, the difference working in PR and, and, and working? The, there's a huge crossover, you said. Well, for example... Uh, you know, I'm in marketing. I and now I I freelance, so I write. I work for a, a wide range of clients. But one of the things you have to do 
your service as a marketer, which is your service as a writer, is to understand the needs of your audience and what they're looking for and what pleases them or what sets them off or what interests them. And most people in business aren't really that good at that. So they hire us marketing people to look at their customers and tell a story to them. Well, I won't say that. A lot of marketers say they tell a story. I usually don't. I usually I just have bullet points but, uh, and save my stories for my fiction. But a lot, and plus the writing and short, terse, entertaining, zippy writing is amazingly rare in marketing. Um, so yeah, I have one client who really likes kind of edgy, vaguely verging on sarcastic tone for the stuff I do for her. And I'm always, I'm very happy with that because almost no one really wants to go that far. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's very educational. Aside from paying better, um, it, you get exposed to a huge number of different businesses. You talk to all sorts of different people who have different things that they do. So it feeds back into the fiction as well. So if there are any fiction writers who are looking for a freelance gig, I would say marketing is a good, is a good way to do it. And interestingly enough, uh, there are, I guess, five or six writers who I have interviewed on the show and a couple that I'm actually good friends with who have also ended up in marketing and public relations. It's, uh, and they seem remarkably comfortable there. It will also be one of the last jobs replaced by AIs. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a longer term career than some. <laughs> Lawyers will go long before marketing people do. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about the, the style in which you write. Um, your reviewers refer to your stuff as as edgy, smart, well-written, uh, cyberpunk-ish. Well, yeah, I mean, part of the problem is I like, I do try for well-written. Now, it's interesting, that's not necessarily the primary value of a story. I have a very strong prose sense. I don't mean that I'm really good at prose, but bad prose in others makes my skin itch. I can, it really is kind of an aversion. So there are some very entertaining books that I can't read because the prose bugs me. Other people, they don't mind good prose, but that's not what they're looking for. Um, and so... And I don't know that most science fiction readers are looking for that. But for those who are, um, you know, most of my reading, I read a lot of science fiction, but I also read a lot of other things. And I try to bring some other stylistic things into science fiction. So I do like suspense. I do like action. Uh, those are all both surprisingly hard, at least for me, to write. Um, and good prose is something some people hide behind, I think. They say, well, yeah, the story's kind of boring, but look at this sentence. 
Well, a good sentence is a good thing, but it's not a substitute for a good story, particularly in a genre like ours, a commercial genre like ours. Um, so yeah, I am, if you were to put me in a, you know, if you had like a Venn diagram of various parts of science fiction, I am more in the literary end. On the other hand, most literary writers or literary science fiction writers tend to be also English professors or teachers or something like that. And I'm none of those things. I I find a lot of those boring, to be honest with you. Those, <laughs> those writers who are also professors of one kind or another. I mean, one of the only ones who, who I read that wasn't was was Asimov, and I never found him boring in the slightest. Well, he was a chemistry professor. He's <laughs> a different... Uh... He's an English professor, that's for sure. <laughs> so now, like, John Kessel is an uh, English professor, was, he retired recently. Yeah, he's a very fine writer, and Dora Goss is also an English professor. Those are both people I know. Um, but they also do write about literature. They both use Frankenstein, for example. Frankenstein is a, an amazingly popular trope, more on the literary end, interestingly, because they go back to the original book, not to the, the whale movie or any of the other Frankenstein movies. Um, and yeah, it's, you can bootleg some of that in, but you can't rely on it. So it should be an extra. It should be something that's plus, not the point of the story. Because um, the window should be, you shouldn't be admiring the window when you're looking out at the scenery. That's, I think, the main thing. But I do, so um, sometimes when you say, oh, that's well written, that's not entirely like 100% the best thing you want to hear <laughs> you're, when you're trying to sell a, um, a science fiction novel or trying to get someone to read a science fiction novel. When you were... Um Growing up, uh, I shudder to use that word as well. How did you get introduced <laughs> to science fiction, and, and and what what did you start reading in in your right. life that that caught you? Well, it's kind of interesting because I had a old friend over last night who was in town on business, and he was digging around my shelf. I have a one bookcase of my old science fiction books from that I grew up with and collected over the years and um, have never done, I always carry them around. I rarely reread them, but I, I like seeing them there on the shelf. And one of the books was um, Citizen of the Galaxy by, by Robert Heinlein. Yep. Um, and that was my very first science fiction book one of my very first books I ever actually read, you know, as opposed to having it read to me. Um, I remember it taking me a long time to read the first time I read. I got it in my school library. It was one of those library bound, you know, that they don't really have anymore with that heavy coated cloth cover. Yeah. I'm actually not, not sure how they make them, but it's clearly not the original cover. And this one had, you know, Thor be on the front, which is the main character, standing in front of a galaxy, looking nobly off into the distance. Um, and I don't remember why I picked that off the shelf, but I was utterly 
hypnotized by that book. I probably read it, I don't know, a dozen times over the time I was at that elementary school. Um, so, you know, there's nothing unique or interesting about that. Heinlein is a very common one for people my generation. Um, and um, so, and it's kind of interesting because Heinlein has a sense, which there's a book I'm working on that I'm trying to catch not his style and not his obsessions or interests, but the sense of rational thought that his books had. And whenever, as a child, I, as a child, all the way through probably early high school, when I felt stressed or like I couldn't understand what was going on, which is a fairly common sense <laughs> that I had then and still have, the only thing that would calm me down, it was almost like a, a, a pacifier or something. I would reread, you know, Door into Summer was a particular favorite for that. And a couple other books, and Door into Summer may be responsible for my early engineering career. I'm not sure I can blame him <laughs> for that. But they had a sense that everything made sense, that there was sense you, that sense could be made of the situation you were in. That it was not, it, random things could happen to you, but they still had underlying explanations. And a person who had the ability to look clearly at the situation and figure out what to do could work it. And I've never actually had that in my own life, but well, I have, but not to the extent that his characters do. Sure. And it was, and it was very, I, it, I, when I think back on it, because I would be totally fretful, and that would be, I wouldn't like be rocking, I don't think, rocking back and forth while <laughs> I read them, although I might well have been. But there was a real bond between me and those books. Um, and I don't know, there are people when they try to imitate Heinlein now or to refer to him, do kind of a Heinlein style thing, and and he had a he had a nice style. Um, he had a, a stance, you know, the hard science fiction stance of rationality uh, and mas and masculinity. It had a male feel to it, um, and they. But I think what's important and the. Yeah, the speeches. You know, everyone's explaining things all the time in his books. And so I said, well, I'd like a Heinlein novel without explanation in it, without one character explaining things to another. And I said, well, that's like an opera without arias. You know, that's, that's really part of the point. Um, and so <laughs> they um, try to imitate kind of details of his work, but it's really the, the, the way of looking at the world. Um, kind of wide, you're standing straight up with your feet widespread, you know, and uh, looking and looking clearly at what's around and dispassionately at what's around you. It's kind of a Bayesian way of addressing the world. It, uh, it's so kind of kind like of, looking with wonder at the universe and having somebody at your shoulder explaining it to you. <laughs> Well, yeah, you say, you know, it's, it's not, you know, for those of us of that, uh, that tribe, the explanation is a plus. 
it doesn't interfere with the beautiful sunset or the galaxy spread out across the sky or the exotic flower or whatever. Uh, seeing the exotic flower and then learning how it reproduces, why it's there and what weird things that insects do with it um, is a plus. And for some people, it really does bug them to get that other channel. Um, for them, it's crosstalk. It, it really is like hearing a different TV station or something. But for a certain kind of personality, the personality attracted to those books, it's an additional channel rather than an interfering one. What authors? What other authors did you read growing up that that really had a profound effect on you? Because I got when when I was young, I was actually spoon fed four authors, and uh, it was uh, Asimov, Heinlein. Arthur C. Clarke, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. And my father had literally all their books, and we, yeah. they were there for me. And he said, just you read them as you wish, which was, for me, just like, you know, a gold mine. <laughs> and it's interesting, because Burroughs is quite different than those other three, because yep. he's not one of those rationalist guys. Not uh, at all. In fact, the exact a, opposite. <laughs> yeah, he writes romances instead of not, you know, the, in the classical sense as opposed to novels. Um, well, those three, those first three, certainly. Um, but Jack Vance, for example, uh, was a huge favorite. Very different than Heinlein. Uh, big influence, um, particularly on my first book, Carve the Sky. But in general, that kind of because um, Vance had a distinct, somewhat precious prose style that I really, really liked. Um, and all his characters were more than sardonic characters, uh, that, or at least that's the predominant mode. Everyone's kind of unflappable, uh, somewhat languid, uh, not disposed to action except uh, at frantic moments and the landscapes and the weird things people were doing uh, were a big part of the story. And there again, I know that someone recently did an anthology of like Vance tribute stories. And again, they tried to imitate his style. I don't think it's a good idea to try to imitate such a specific style, but he had a mood that he evoked in the book. You know, I, I'm getting into kind of, Arcana here, but the You're book entitled. is that that had the uh, anyone listening to this, you know, we should probably have show notes or something so they can go and find the stuff we're talking about. But there's a book he wrote called Inferio, um, which is kind of a wheels within wheels story uh, about a boy growing up on in a city where. Technology is restricted because they're all famous artists, essentially, and they trade gal galactically. So no one's allowed to use any reproductive technology. I mean, reproducing of art. You can't photocopy. You can't uh, do any of those things. Those are strictly verboten. Um, so it's kind of a mandated, like, craftsman world. But there's a mood, kind of an odd, melancholy... Um, ragged around the edges feeling to that um, that I really like. You know, uh, and I like mood writers. I'd say Gene Wolfe is another mood 
writer where it kind of grows out of all the events and all the way things are described, but sometimes when you come away from it, you remember how you felt or how it made you feel as opposed to any specific incidents or things people said or what things looked like. Um, so let me think of what other, um, so yeah, so, you know, between Vance and Heinlein, that why no one, you know, if you fall in between those, then who, yeah, I don't know, or a combination of those is kind of an odd thing, but I would say that's kind of where I fall. So when you started, when did you actually start thinking to yourself, hey, I can, I can do this. I have an idea and, and I want to make a story out of it. When did that start to happen for you? Well, it's this is a um, really a nice thing because I, um, yeah, I'd written kind of funny things to make my friends laugh in high school. Then I got to college, and I joined the science fiction club at college. Uh, actually, one guy I helped start it because one guy just sent put up a message that said anyone's interested in science fiction. We were having a meeting at this time, and like three or four of us showed up, and we kind of formed a, a, our organization. One of the other guys who I became quite close friends with um, had written a book. He'd actually written three novels. He hadn't sold any yet. Um, but I was so impressed, but I had that same feeling. I said, well, yeah, I could probably do that. Now, I didn't start with a novel, but he was willing to... Read my. I wrote a story, um, and I had him read it. And he was very. It was. He was older. He was a graduate student, um, and uh, I would say that that person had a big influence on me because um, the first couple of stories, he really was. He kind of critiqued them uh, long before I'd heard of workshops or how they work or anything, but in a very positive way. And it's important we might get into workshops and their dysfunctions and functions at some point, but you have to know where the writer is to know what kind of feedback to give that writer on their work. Uh, and he knew exactly what to give me. And so I felt really good, and so I wrote a few more stories, and, and that was it. I was hooked. Um, took me a while to sell something, but um, it was like I had, you know, pushed my glider along and it bumped along the ground and it finally left, you know, I flew off and, and could stay in the air for a while. But, um, I lo I've lost touch with that, that person years ago. And now that I think about it, I never like said, Hey, you really had a big influence on my life. <laughs> really did. Uh, it's rare. And I realized, yeah, sometimes we all have that. We influence someone's life and we drifted apart and they can't find us or, and, and really we, part of us is in them. So part of that person is in me at all times. And I do think about that fairly, you know, not every day, but you know, once a month or so, I think, yeah, I still remember the room he had and, where we get together because there were several of us who would get together on his room to talk writing and drink and, and play board games. Uh, we all played, you know, science, science fictional board games. And, and it was really a vital, uh, important 
the transitional thing in my life. So that that's kind of how it happened. But the good transition there is from, um, you know, meeting together, talking about stories, uh, talking to each other about the process, and then one day actually selling a story. <laughs> what, well, yeah. What was, and What was that like? Well, the thing is, and I've gotten a couple of, you know, encouraging rejections, you know, where someone actually writes you and says, please send me another story, which is always, you know, the great thing is any, any, and I, I often forget this and none of us should forget it. Positive feedback to people is great. <laughs> it is really such a joyous thing when someone picks up something you know, maybe you didn't succeed entirely, but picks up something good in what you've done, whether it's writing or cleaning the kitchen or whatever it is, and instead of focusing on what you did inadequately, says, yeah, you did this really well. And I don't, now that I'm saying this, I realize, no, I don't do that often enough with people. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I finally did sell a and it was a fantasy story, interestingly enough. My very first story was inspired by a, a Jorge Luis Borges story called the, A Lottery in Babylon. And I took one paragraph from that story, which, which you know, is not very long, but like any Borges story, it has like a million things in it, kind of interrelated, but like different facets of a jewel, really, any Morgan story is. Uh, so I took one facet and took, turned it into a story. Um, and uh, Amazing bought it back when there was Amazing. And it was a real, it, so it was kind of a literary-ish fantasy story. It's never been reprinted. I, I wasn't later in, in later life. I was not particularly impressed by that story when I reread it. But it was great um, to do. <laughs> and it was fun. It's a great moment. And I mean, <laughs> it is. And you can't, you know, if there's um, aspiring writers in the audience, the, you know, my life, rejection is ever-present, right? And it's, it's never fun. It's never something you're looking for. Um, I, I get rejected still a lot, you know, from different stories I try, you know, um, sometimes one person likes it, a different person, someone doesn't like it, but someone else does. Um, and it's a hard thing to continually solicit rejection. <laughs> well, the the other thing, said, too, is that at that point in the history of, of science fiction publishing, there were a whole bunch of pulp magazines like Amazing Stories uh, like fantasy and science fiction, just, you know, seven or eight of them. And you could, you know, keep having a relationship with an editor who didn't ever accept any of your work, but would send it back and go, this was a good try. Those kinds of things, that, that whole process really doesn't exist anymore. Well, I don't know. You know, there's like, there are, they've moved online, like, Clark's World or Strange Horizons. You've got to remember that the greatest, or I wouldn't speak for them, but a great, great pleasure, something an editor, 
really wants is to find a new writer because it's like treasure. You know, they, it is such a joyful thing for them because, you know, slush piles are slush piles. And to find even a gem that needs work in the slush pile, and it's not someone they've ever heard of. It's a new person, could be a young person, could be an old person, you know, older person. Sometimes people retire from their career and start writing um, and are really good, you know, or, or work toward being good. And editors do, and they love finding a writer and kind of helping them with their career. Because right, editing is kind of a thankless task, and which is why I always make sure to thank my editors when they help <laughs> me <laughs> with something. Because, yeah, my editors are saying, well, you've got to change this. So they assume everything else is fine. But, you know, like Neil Clark at Clark's World, he, I'm sure he would love to find a new writer. And the writer then resonates with the taste of that editor because that first story is like, oh, yeah, this is what I really like. So often they do build a relationship, and I think that still happens. Um, and so I would not – yeah, it's a different structure, um, and the types of stories that work online are not always the same stories that, that would have worked in a, a, one of those older, you know, digester pulp magazines. Um, but it is true that, that this is a, a, you know, buying a, buying a good story from a writer you already know who is good is nice. I'm sure they don't mind that. But to find a great story by someone you've never heard of to them is really fantastic. Or even a re just a good story. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things that kind of is distinctive for you uh, is, is that you kind of write in a subgenre of science fiction. And first of all, I'm annoyed that we go genres, subgenre, blah, 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 and, and create all these fucking pigeonholes. It's just ridiculous. But one of the places you go that most authors don't is you take a good, hard comedy. You, you, you don't shy away from making things funny. Not necessarily cute, but definitely a sardonic air to it. And there, there are a couple of writers who've done a really, really good job of that. Spider Robinson did. Uh, Ron Goulart did. And, and how was is that just a function of that's the way you write? Or did you look for that? Well, I do. I don't always write funny. But um, I usually do have some funny incident or comment in a story. But first of all, you know, it actually, if you write, first, comedy's harder, it's not necessarily harder, but it's easier to blow. You know, if you have a, a suspense scene that's not quite as suspenseful as it should be, well, then it's just a suspense scene that's not super suspenseful. If you're trying to be funny and you aren't funny, then you're sad. Yeah, you're just <laughs> not damn funny at that <laughs> Yeah, the fall off the slope is much steeper, you know. Uh, <laughs> so the, the margin for error is way less. On the other hand, there's always editing. You have to remember that. You write, in comedy, you, you keep 
doing just like the Marx Brothers did all their stuff by they taking it on the road and making a live show and then seeing which ones got laughs and which ones didn't because it's hard and that's the eternal thing you're writing you can't hear the audience laugh right, right. so uh, trying to get your pace and your um, you know giving it get, letting it breathe you know let, letting the the beat happen so that the next joke lands properly um, you have to kind of it's a you know <laughs> it's kind of you have to go on a prayer with that um, and I you know I, I remember once I sold uh, I hadn't sold to F and SF and uh, it, was, it was Gordon Van Gelder was in the editor and he, he said in his in his uh, editor's you know notes that you know, he never gets enough funny stories and the best way to sell a story to the magazine is to write a funny story because he doesn't get enough. So I did. It was a funny AI hunter story. <laughs> if you can uh, okay. uh, imagine that. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a frenetic uh, uh, comedy of errors thing where they're hunting an AI in, in this shopping mall. Um, and he... So that, and he really said, I thought it was funny, and so I'm buying it. Um, so I do, I do enjoy that, and I do enjoy, you know, I've never written a, a comic novel like Ron Goulart. Right. Did, or, or, or Robert Checkley. Actually, Robert Checkley was the guy I really liked. Um, and he's he kind had of, such you a know, dry he, wit about the way he wrote. <laughs> he did, he did. And I, uh, you know... Just like I was just remembering, he wrote a book called The Journey of Jones, which was a supposedly someone had collected a bunch of works from the I think the 21st century, and they were in the 25th century, and they were trying to make make sense of it. And in one of the scenes, people, the police are chasing someone, and they're filing, firing wildly into the crowd because that was mandatory for them to do because of overpopulation so whenever they were pursuing someone they had to fire wildly into the crowd <laughs> so that gives you yeah that that's the level that's the kind of cruel <laughs> style that he had um so yeah i do i will say though it is dangerous to be funny when people aren't expecting you to be funny because there's a uh, you know you were saying about pigeonholing and it but genre yeah, genre is also it's a brand, you know, and it's a kind of a implicit contract with the reader. And yeah, it can be kind of constricting. On the other hand, you know, we're often ourselves look. Oh, I want a cozy mystery, or I want a suspense. I want a techno thriller. You know, you know what you're kind of in the mood for. I want a Heinlein novel to calm me down. Whatever that is. And so you're willing to accept a certain amount of genre, you know, um, playing around, but not, you don't want something that you don't, you're not sure what you're reading unless you have decided that that's what you're looking for. So like Brain Thief, my last book was kind of a techno thriller, but it was kind of funny. And that is tough to pull off and I'm not sure I... <laughs> I like it still, and my editor liked it, and I think it would make a great movie. But you have to be ready for it because it looks a little more straight ahead than it turns out to be. And 
there's got to be a better way to you got to signal what that is. Um, the cover can help. <laughs> now, <laughs> you you had mentioned about you know when when you're writing a comedy, or actually when you're writing anything, you can't hear the audience's response. So you have to hone it and hone it and, and hope for the best with it. On the other hand, you did mention about uh, working at the Odyssey uh, writing workshop. And, you know, writing workshops like Odyssey, uh, which is probably one of the most well-known for science fiction writers and fantasy writers, and, and smaller ones all around the country uh, that, are, that are now, uh, that have been around for years, are a good voice a good chance to throw the carp into the center of the ice and see who <laughs> skates after it. There, there I, was an yeah. odd little reference for no apparent reason. <laughs> well, yeah, I honestly, Jean, Jean Cavellas put this together um, that she runs every summer. I highly recommend it for prospective writers. I kind of wish I'd, I've never been through, uh, a workshop as a student. Um, now, here, here's an odd thing that you may not be aware of, that when Sci-Fi Saturday Night started, uh, we actually started on radio, and Jean was one of our hosts for the first year. Oh, she was. Well, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. Uh, everything, and, and I watch her, you know, I go there for a day. Um, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, you bring in, it's kind of like a children's part of, uh, a party where you bring in a snake or a, a kangaroo or something for the kids to, to look at. So she brings in writers uh, so they see what we look like and to show that it's really not that big a deal <laughs> to be a writer. Anybody can do it. Um, I'm not so sure but, that's why she brings you in, but whatever. <laughs> um, and I think she does try to get a range of people because yeah, I mean, it's not that anyway, but it's, it's uh, the range of people who, who write and is very, is wide. Um, and so, but yeah, that's like a six week sleepaway camp thing. And they <laughs> eat, you know, they're just there full time and it must be really fun, uh, to, to do, but she handles it all herself like the whole time. Um, not, um, like some other workshops that have a whole team of people to do it. Sure. Um, but yeah, it helps, you know, I have a peer workshop of fellow writers here in, um, in, Boston, in the Boston area, which is where I live. Although one of them drives down from northern Vermont to go to the workshop, um, which is quite a noble effort. And uh, one person comes from Providence, Rhode Island. So, and they actually commute to, to do this. Nice. Um, and this is where I, what I'm talking about, because I can be a little, I would, I would like to say overly precise, mean, I guess. In not, I'm not being mean, but it can have the effect of being mean uh, in my critiques, because you do really have to think where even an accomplished, really skilled writer might be trying something new, trying an experiment, you know, going past their comfort zone. And you have to recognize that, and and writing is so exposing, and so and you're always putting your ego out there to get <laughs> kicked around, um, and so 
I try to be useful. And just to advert back to my marketing career, I remember when I was a, a marketing manager at an actual company, I'd send my each piece to various people who who I was marketing, you know, whatever department it was, whatever function it was, or service, or whatever. And I say, well, tell me if there's mistakes in here. You know, I want a factual. I don't want them to tell me, oh, I think you're grab you're you you shouldn't use a semicolon there. That's not what I want them to do. Although that's often what people decide that they're going to focus on. And then, uh, and I'd say you have to tell me if there's a mistake or I've done something wrong or something dumb. Because if you tell me, then it's just you and me who know I did something dumb. If you don't tell me, then it's everyone who reads it after it's printed <laughs> and sent out who knows I did something dumb. And I'd rather be it just the two of us. Um, so writing workshops are very good that way. Because particularly if you're trying something new, because then you are daring your path, your, where your skills, your kind of reflexes are. Um, and if you have people who can catch you when you fall, you're willing to try, to try more. So anyone who's in the audience who does want to be a writer, that really does, even if it's just one other person, but a group is way more fun um, to do. And we've been, this workshop, I've been in for more time than I want to say, but the workshop's been around for 35 years uh, as an entity. There, there are um, <clears throat> writers' groups that exist uh, purely for the the chance to be able to say to someone, "What do you think?" <laughs> well, yeah, um, and it's you know I know people who have a, have their first readers, that, as they call them, yeah. and they're not a group; they're just some people they know that they send things to and uh, fellow writers usually, but not always, um, who then give, give their comments, but they don't like get together. We have a very formal system with a circle and we go around and there's, there's rules and what you can and can't say. And, um, and it works very, you have to find what you're, and other people find that maddening and, uh, and can't stand it. I, I like it. I like structure. Uh, as I said, I'm mentally disorganized. So finding a structure. That, <laughs> yes, it really, really helps. Um, uh, I try to create, I create them for myself, but it's much nicer if someone else creates one that I like <laughs> that I can crawl into like a hermit crab into a shell. So hey, that's a metaphor. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's not bad. That one's not bad at all. <laughs> this year, you've been uh, uh, doing uh, panels at both the Risha and Boscone, I believe. And for those of you who don't know it, uh, Boscone is a science fiction authors convention. And every year, they do some amazing, amazing stuff there. So what kind of stuff are you talking about when you, when you do these things? Well, you know, it's an interesting culture um you know it's like four or five people sitting up on this raised stage in front of an audience uh talking about a topic and it can be um how 
it can be a writing-oriented one because even people who don't want to be writers often like hearing kind of, it's almost like a cooking show, even if you don't like cooking, <laughs> which many people are watch. you can't shows. cook. Yeah, you can't cook and have no intention of cooking. Um, still like watching, you know, people cook or have no interest in flipping their house, but like watching house flipping things. So it doesn't, it's not totally bizarre that people like listening to writers talk about how they do their writing. Um, cause some people like seeing expertise displayed, you know, no matter what, what it is. Um, there's things about, you know, writers recommending their favorite books or, or talking about themes, you know, whether it's monsters or, gender relations or um, how race is portrayed in, in fiction or where are we now, uh, what's com- what kinds of things should you look for in fiction coming up. Um, I'm not really a good one to listen about, to, about that. I'm too stuck in, I'm too behind. I've always been behind and I'm just too behind. Um, so there, funny helps. Um, and... But not too much, because you're not supposed to be taking up too much oxygen. It really helps if they're, you know, and I love them when I meet people I've never met before, and we kind of, I learn, we can kind of throw ideas back and forth um, and work something out while we're on there. But there's a million themes. I was one on uh, Isaac Newton, the the life of Isaac Newton, I remember, because I'm a big fan of Isaac Newton, so we, you know. Uh, oh, particularly his mint, oh, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> particularly his years at the Mint, which I think were his main, you know, his biggest contribution was preventing uh, counterfeiting in, <laughs> at the end of his career. No, but, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, they're all about, everyone hangs out. I, I go because I get to meet other writers. You know, I, I meet old friends, some people I only meet at one or another convention. Uh, but I go to meet right readers and, you know, and just to have, you know, uh, drink at night and go out to dinner and things. But they're really, conventions are really fun. I, I recommend it for anybody, no matter who, I mean, as long as you like science fiction. Um, and any writer likes having people come up and say they've read something <laughs> that the person has written, no matter it's, how It's always a are. great sense of validation, for sure. Now, now, do you ever go? Do you go to either of those? Uh, I have never been to Boscone. I have always wanted to. Yeah, it's 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 fun, you know. ReaderCon ha- is another one that happens in the summer. Yeah, uh, which is to- which you can tell from the name is just books. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I, for a long time, I you know, and I have to say, you know, I I gave you that spiel about my kids uh, with my writing and why there was a big gap, but it's a self perpetuating thing. Writing is is a it's like riding a unicycle. Yeah, the balance is very difficult, and even really, and I am saying this kind of in a self-exculpatory way, but even really well-known writers sometimes fall off their unicycle and have real lot of trouble starting up again. Um, and so I did. I the I had, it was like I I had a pipeline of stuff flowing through, and then when there was an interruption, it was very hard for me to get started again and. And I remember my, my then wife uh, said, you should go. Go to ReaderCon. People will be happy to see you. They don't care. 
you know, they're, they're too busy with their stuff to even know whether you've written anything recently or not. And I took her advice and it really was true. Um, you know, writers, you know, the great thing is, uh, to go to a convention is writers will, even if no one else will hang out with you, writers will hang out with you. <laughs> well, Alex, hope, hopefully next year we'll get together at Boscon. I would love to do that. Well, yeah, so just let me know because it's really fun. You know, I uh, I saw Colby, who you mentioned earlier, at Aresia, sure. which is a much more wide-ranging convention. It is, great costumes. most definitely so. And, and all sorts of stuff. Almost anybody who does anything could find something they like there, uh, whether they game or build things or dress up or anything. Um, we, we've been talking for almost an hour now to Alex Yabaklov, and uh, we could probably talk for another two or three. <laughs> but we're not going to because <laughs> Alex, all right. For joining us tonight, it's been a lot of fun. And all right, thank you. Soon. And next week, we're going to be joined by Jimmy the Horman Science Fiction Property Specialist. They're going to be bringing. We'll be there Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast. Bird House took the best deals and original art from Dust Favorite Art. The Jiggle Sci-Fi Saturday Night's Anthology, My Family, now on Amazon. And Or if amazing music can be found on Rob on our outro music is provided by Lawrence Maiden Cry. And their grooves can be found at lawrencemaidencry.com. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us tonight from the Peabody Time Tunnel, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Diana, and our woman's bazaar. Thank you so much, ladies. This is Dome saying, Dirty Genie, your name is left in the future. Enjoy the cast, everyone. I know.